Thank you, Neil. Hey, good morning. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, great to be with you this morning. First things first, I want to introduce you to the newest member of the Borchick clan. On Monday, uh, my wife gave birth to this little guy. This is Archer J. Borchick. Um, He's doing great. Him and mom are both super healthy. Uh, Yes, my kids have weird names. We've got Trip, Jet, and Archer. Um, when you start with Trip and Jet, you, got, you can't have like Trip, Jet, and Steve. It just doesn't work. So we had to be creative. Uh, we thought about Miles, but the travel team, Trip, Jet, and Miles, would, would have been a little too strong, the travel team there. You know, so we settled on Archer, and we're excited about it. Uh, he's doing great. It's a joy to have him in the family. Uh, you get to meet him soon. He'll be around. So uh, if you're new here today, welcome. Glad to have you joining us. Uh, before we dive into this passage, let's pray. We'll jump in. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that you come down to us and that you speak, that you reveal yourself to us. And God, we ask this morning that you do that once again. Uh, Father, would your word be clear? Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in it? Would you speak and let us hear your voice? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so we're in this series. We're walking through the book of Exodus. And today we quite literally come to the pinnacle of the entire story, Mount Sinai. Everything we've studied over the past few months has been building to this point. In Exodus chapter 3, God told Moses that after he had led the people out of slavery in Egypt, they would worship God on Mount Sinai. And several months later, after the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea and those chicken and waffles coming down in the wilderness, after all of that, here they are. Free from slavery at last, worshiping God at Mount Sinai, doing exactly what God told Moses they would do. The events of Exodus chapters 19 and 20 are among the most well-known in the entire Bible. Israel camps at the base of the mountain as Moses goes up and down to talk with God. The mountain blazes and smokes and trembles. And then God speaks and he delivers the Ten Commandments to the people. And even if today is your first time ever stepping foot into a church, you're almost certainly familiar with the Ten Commandments, with the words God speaks here. Charlton Heston long ago seared this moment, seared the image of Moses atop Mount Sinai into our collective cultural memory. So we as a people, we as a a Western society, we know about the Ten Commandments. We know about the Ten Commandments. However, that does not mean that we necessarily know the Ten Commandments. In fact, and this isn't super recent, but a 2007 study found that on average, Americans know the ingredients in a Big Mac better than they know the Ten Commandments. All right, two all-beef patties, special sauce, sesame seed bun. I don't know what else is in there, but apparently everyone else does. We know about the Ten Commandments, but we don't really know the Ten Commandments. And so as we look at this text this morning... I want to begin by helping us to get to know them a little better. And the way we're going to do that is with a a few big picture observations and then a quick flyover of each of the Ten Commandments. That's where we're going to start. So let me start with a few big picture observations. First, as we look at these ten laws, one way you can think about it is kind of like the United States Constitution. And this isn't a perfect analogy. It breaks down quickly if if you dwell on it, but I think it helps us. The Constitution is the foundational document for life in the United States. It gives shape to the life of the whole nation. And as law, it's kind of like the hub at the center of a bicycle wheel. 
So you have at the center, you have the Constitution. And then out from that center, you have all these spokes that are all the local, or all the state and local and federal laws, the spokes that come out from it. But at the center, in giving shape to all of it, you have the Constitution. And in the Bible, and in the life of God's Old Testament people, the Ten Commandments are like the Constitution. The Ten Commandments are intended to shape the life of the nation. There are lots of other laws that are the spokes that we'll look at in the weeks to come. But at the center in shaping all of it and shaping the people is the Ten Commandments. Now second, as you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that there's both a vertical and a horizontal aspect to these laws. The first four commandments are all vertical. They deal with people and their relationship with God. And then the last six are all horizontal. They deal with our relationships with each other. And this is why when Jesus was asked about what is the greatest commandment in the law, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, vertical, and love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. He summarized the law by referencing those two axes of it. And that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. And then finally, on the big picture, third thing, you need to know that each and every one of these commands is expressed using a singular verb form. So these commands are all directed toward individual people. So while the goal is the shaping of a whole community, a community is made up of individuals like you and like me. And so every individual in the community has responsibility for obeying these commands personally. These are directed to you today. So that's the big picture. Now let's take a look at each of them one by one. And this is going to be necessarily brief. I wish we had 10 weeks to walk through each of these and give each of them due attention. But we got like 10 minutes, so we're going to go quick. First commandment, chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So the nine commandments that follow this one all regulate behavior. But the first and foundational uh, command regulates a relationship. This command is God saying, I'm the only one. No other gods before me does not mean you can have other gods after me. It means no other gods, period. So God is saying here, I'm your one and only. It's like a marriage. It's you and me forever, nobody else. Second commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now in the ancient world, uh, idol worship was super common. People would carve wood and stone idols to represent the likeness of whatever gods they worshipped. And the reason was so that they could take these invisible gods out there and make them visible and therefore controllable, manipulatable in some way. They could see their God, and then they could do things to get the God to do for them whatever they wanted the God to do. And so this, was a, this whole system of, of uh, crafting these idols was about manipulation. It was a relationship based on manipulation. I give you an offering, and you give me good crops. I do this for you, you do that for me. That's the way it worked. And what God is saying here in the second commandment is he's saying, I don't play that game. Don't try to shrink me down to size. Don't try to fit me into a box where you can control me. I won't go there. I don't play like that. Don't try to manipulate me. That's not how I roll. That's what he's saying. Third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, if and when we think about this commandment, we typically think about it in terms of not saying God's name as a cuss word. 
But this command is about way more than cuss words. See, your name represents who you are. It represents your character, your reputation. And so to take someone's name in vain is to misuse their name or to misrepresent them, to put their name on something that they're not about. So back in high school, uh, my dad was my assistant principal when I was in high school, which meant that he had a lot of power in the school. And sometimes I would say to my teacher, hey, uh, my dad said that I could leave school early today. Or my dad said that I didn't have to come to class today. And uh, just being honest here, back when I was in high school, sometimes I would say that stuff when my dad didn't say anything of the sort. And what I was doing in those situations is I was using my dad's name in vain. Like I was putting my dad's name on something that he was not about, right? And so this happens today, yes, for us when people use Jesus as a cuss word. We put his name on something he's not about. But it also happens when a Christian gathers on a Sunday morning for worship and stands and raises his hands and outwardly makes it look like he is all about worshiping God. But on the inside, all he's thinking about is the Cubs game this afternoon. And maybe the most seriously serious place where it happens is when someone takes a theological or a moral position that God does not support in his word and tries to say God supports this, God is about this. When there is real, no real evidence that God is about that. That's what it means to use the Lord's name in vain. Fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now this means that we are to guard one day in seven where we prioritize rest over work and worship over football. This means that we are to trust God to accomplish in six days what the rest of the world is trying to get done in seven. And so in short, what it means is that we're supposed to be like Chick-fil-A, closed on Sundays. (laughs) Fifth commandment. Now as we come to the fifth commandment, we actually come to the hinge between the vertical and the horizontal section of the law. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. To honor your parents means to hold them in high esteem, to respect them, to listen to them. But this command here is not directed just to little kids. This command is directed to the whole of the community. God's people are told to honor their parents all throughout life. And the assumption here is that the parents who are being honored, are honoring God. And so by honoring their parents, the next generation likewise then learns to honor God. See how that works? And so this command is the hinge in the Ten Commandments because the family is the foundation for the whole of the society. Strong families build strong neighborhoods, which build strong communities, which build strong nations. And if you want to see a society wherein commandments 6 through 10 about loving your neighbor are lived out, then you need families where commands one through four are lived out. And you need kids who honor their parents and learn to live out one through four. So that's the fifth commandment. Sixth commandment, verse 13. You shall not murder. Murder is when you unlawfully and deliberately take the life of another. So this is not particularly about manslaughter or about war or about the state executing someone. This is about you or me or someone else going individual or going rogue and taking someone out on their own. That's what murder is. Seventh commandment, verse 14. 
You shall not commit adultery. Don't engage in sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. Eighth commandment, verse 15. You shall not steal. Don't take stuff that isn't yours. Ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Specifically, this is about telling the truth in a courtroom when you're a witness to a crime. But much more broadly, this is about speaking the truth in all things. Saying words out of your mouth that align with reality. Telling the truth. Tenth commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting. Coveting is about deeply desiring something that isn't yours. And so this final commandment gets right to the heart. This is not just about what you do, but about what you want to do, what you desire to do. And in that way, this commandment functions as a summary commandment for the whole law that deals with the sin behind the sins in all of the preceding commandments. I mean, think about it. Like, you can't commit adultery without first coveting. Right? Like, you don't just accidentally slip and fall into bed with someone and say, oops, how did that happen? Right? Like, if you're going to commit adultery, it's because you thought about it and you desired it in your heart. And then you acted on it. And the same is true with stealing or with murder or with lying or with dishonoring your parents, with all of that stuff. And so coveting lies behind every other sin. And so those are the Ten Commandments. These are the foundational laws that God gave to his people to shape their life as a people. And so here's the application today. You ready? Go and keep the Ten Commandments. Go and do it. Go keep the law. End of sermon. Let's go home. Now, we could do that. And some of you have probably heard sermons like that before. Sermons where a list of commands is given and then you're just told to go and keep them. Go be a better person. And this is God's law after all. So you should go and keep these commandments. And at the end of this sermon, when all is said and done, I am going to tell you to go and keep these commandments. But if I did that right now, Here's what I know. If I just told you right now to go and keep these laws, God said to do it, it's your duty, you have to, go and do it. If I said that right now, and I sent you home, we would all get this text wrong. We would all get this text wrong. Because while this text is about God commanding his people to go and do these commandments, the reasoning behind going and doing them is radically different than what we usually think. And so in the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about two wrongs and a right. Two wrongs and a right when it comes to understanding and applying the law in our lives today. Two wrongs and a right. Wrong number one. The first wrong is what I'm going to call rejection. Rejection. If I just told you all to go home today and to keep these laws, what some of you would do is you'd straight up reject it. 
You'd say, nah, bro, no way. I'm not doing that. I don't care, I'm not doing it. That's stupid. Maybe not with all the commandments. Like you'd be fine with the do not murder stuff. But certainly with the things about worshiping God alone, there being only one God and you can only worship him. And, and the stuff about keeping the Sabbath. I mean, come, come on, the Sabbath, really? And, 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 and that stuff about sex. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, some of you would say, no way. Like, I'm not doing that. You'd reject it. And, and the reason for that, the reason why you'd reject it is, is because of the general ethic of our age. We live in what has been called the age of authenticity. And the chief values of our age are autonomy, individuality, and freedom of choice. We've been taught that nobody has the right to tell anyone else what to think or how to behave. So anybody here a a fan of the movie Frozen? Any Frozen fans out there? Yeah? I mean, you don't have to admit it because I know y'all love it. But do you remember the theme song of the movie? Let it go, right? And do you remember what Elsa sings as the snow and the ice are swirling all around her? She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm, let it, y'all know it, come on. Come on, talk to me. I'm free, let it go, let it go. That's the theme song of our age. And so what we do is we reject any and all efforts to impose rules like the Ten Commandments on society. Our secular society basically looks at the law like it's a prison that has to be escaped. So the commandments are like bars on the windows. And religious people who try to impose them on others are like the guards patrolling the grounds, trying to catch somebody and get them. And God is like the prison warden, whose primary job is to make sure that no one has any fun. And so because we prize freedom above all else, the law with all its thou shalt nots has become a prison that we must escape. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Reject it. Now I said that rejecting the law is a wrong. And you might be thinking that the reason I'm saying it's a wrong is because if God is God, then he has the right to tell us how to live whether we like it or not. So get in line and do what he says. And in point of fact, that's true. Like if God is God, he can tell us how to live. He can tell us what to do. So you could say that here. But there's also a deeper and far more compelling reason why rejecting the law is a wrong. And it's a reason that I think deep down we all know is true even when we don't always see it. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, which takes place 40 years after our scene today, Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments to the people as they're on the brink of finally entering the Promised Land. And as he's summarizing what took place at Sinai in our passage today, he recounts what the Lord said to him after the people received the law. And check out what the Lord says to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. God says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. And watch this, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Did you catch that? That it might go well with them. Do you see God's heart there? God gives his people the law because he wants it to go well with his people. He is the architect of life and so he gives them his plans because he wants the best for them. Y'all, it's like this. 
Kinsey and I live on a, on a busy street. And uh, cars go really fast on, on our road. And so in our yard, we have a fence around our, we, we don't have a big yard, it's a little postage stamp. You know how that, how that works, but we got a little yard and, and we've got a fence around it. And when uh, Trip, our, our now six-year-old, was about two years old, Kinsey and I were out in the yard. We're doing some yard work and Trip's playing out there. And uh, I grab a bag of stuff and I go walk out to the alley behind our place and, and dump it in the trash can. And I come back in and, we, you know, I'd open the gate and I'd walk back in the gate. And Kinsey goes, Jamie, where's Trip?" I said, uh, I, th- I thought he was with you. She looks at me and said, I thought he was with you. So where is he? And we start looking around everywhere. And then I walk out that gate and I look down the walkway behind our place and heads toward the main street. And there's my little two-year-old sprinting as fast as his little legs can carry him, bobbling along, running head on toward traffic. And so I take off sprinting and I go, trip, no, stop, trip, no. And I'm running after him and I chase after him. And about two steps before he hits the road, I scoop him up and grab him into my arms. Now, do we, now, as I'm chasing after him, and as we put a fence around our yard, as I'm telling him, stop, no, am I doing it because I'm trying to rob him of the joy of playing in traffic? I mean, like, in an arcade, Frogger is a fun game. But in real life, Frogger is deadly. You get killed. Like, I didn't put the fence there, and I didn't chase after my son because I hate him and I want to steal his fun. I do it because I'm trying to protect him from becoming a hood ornament. Because I love him and I want the best for him. And I want him to thrive and grow up and become a man someday. That's why the fence is there. And that's why I tell him, stop, no. That fence is for my son's good. And y'all, God gives the law to us for the same reason. He puts a fence around us to protect us. He tells us no, stop, to protect us for our good. Now God's yard is way bigger than mine. But in any case, the fence is there for our protection. Have you ever thought about what would happen if everyone in our world decided to actually keep the Ten Commandments? Like what would change? If everyone kept the Ten Commandments, there'd be no need for courts or for contracts or for prisons. If everyone kept the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need copyright laws. We wouldn't need locks on your home or your car. You wouldn't need identity fraud protection. If everyone kept the Ten Commandments, there'd be no more gang violence on our streets. There'd be no more school shootings. There'd be no more arguing about gun control. If everyone kept the Ten Commandments, no child would ever need fear sexual abuse. No woman would ever need fear sexual assault. And no spouse would ever need fear of betrayal. And if everyone kept the Ten Commandments, we'd all be way less stressed out because our kids would actually listen to us and we'd all be taking a day off every week to rest. Like, can you even imagine a world like that? Now the law is for our good. The law is the fence inside which you experience maximum life and maximum freedom. And so when you reject God's law, you do so to your own detriment. 
Rejecting the law is the first wrong here. Wrong number two. Now the second wrong is what I'm going to call reliance. Reliance. Instead of rejecting the law, what some people do is they rely on the law to save them. They rely on their obedience, on their goodness, to make them right with God. So if I just told you to go home today and to do these commandments, what some of you would do is you would leave here more determined than ever to try harder, to be better, because you are relying on the law to save you. But here's the problem with reliance. The law can't save you. The law can't save you. From start to finish, the Bible is clear about this reality. The law can't save you. You cannot be good enough to earn salvation by keeping the law. You cannot do it. Like just think about this list of Ten Commandments, for example. This is God's standard, and it's not complicated. This is not complex ethics. It's pretty straightforward. But if you walk through it and you use the law here as a rubric against which to evaluate your life, how do you do? We're going to do a little thought experiment here, okay? I'm going to walk through the Ten Commandments, and I want you to be honest with yourself and answer honestly about how you've done in your life with keeping these Ten Commandments. And be honest. Like, God already knows the answers. You're not fooling anybody. you got nothing to hide here today, okay? Just be honest about it. Number one. No other gods before me. In your entire life, have you ever had anything that has become more important to you than God? Oh, for one. Number two, no false images. Have you ever tried to manipulate God in any way? Saying, God, if I do X, then you have to do this for me. Oh, for two. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Ever uh, used God's name as a cuss word or uh, misrepresented him in any way? Oh, for three. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you take a full day for rest and worship every week? Oh, for four. Number five, honor your parents. Ever disrespect or dishonor your mom and dad? Oh, for five. Number six and seven, and this is where you might be thinking that you get a pass. You're going to get a couple of them, but do you remember what Jesus said on these? Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Jesus said that hating someone is the equivalent of murder, and lusting after someone in your heart is the equivalent of adultery. So I'm just going to go ahead and call it 0 for 7, okay? Number eight, you shall not steal. Remember Napster and LimeWire? 0 for 8, 0 for 8. Number nine. Uh, my notes are messed up here. I forget what nine is. What's number nine? Help me out. Did I miss one? Oh, bear false witness. Yeah, you ever told a lie? Ever lied about anyone? Oh, for nine. Number ten. Don't covet. Oh, for ten. Y'all, if we're honest, we go oh for ten on these. Like I go oh for ten. I'm oh for ten on these. I miss every one of them. None of us has kept this law. Like, I don't care how religious or how moral you think you are. None of us has kept God's standard. This is his standard. None of us has done it. Like, even if God grades on a massive curve, 0 for 10 ain't passing the test. Right? Like, you are not getting there. 
The law can't save you. And moreover, what happens when you play that game is that you become miserable. If you're relying on the law to save you, it leads you to misery eventually. Because when you succeed, what happens is you become prideful and you start looking down on everybody else who fails. You become that holier-than-thou person who everyone hates to be around. And then when you fail, you feel despair. Because you can't do it. You feel this despair, like I'm never going to make it. And all along the way, you can never rest because you know there's always more work to be done. So I don't know if you know this story, but it's like with the Winchester house in San Jose, California. Back in the late 1800s, Sarah Winchester married the son of the guy who started the Winchester Rifle Company. And then uh, shortly thereafter, their five-month-old died. Five-month-old daughter died. And then her father-in-law died and left all the money to her husband. And then a few months later, her husband died and left all the money to her. So at 41 years old, Sarah Winchester was left alone with the equivalent of $500 million. But she lost everyone she loved and everything she cared about. And so she was lonely and depressed because of all the loss in her life. And so she went to look for help from a psychic medium. And this psychic allegedly channeled her husband's spirit to tell her that what she had to do to fix what was wrong in her heart and in her life was to start working on a house and never stop. Never stop. As long as she never stopped working, she'd be fine. So what she did is she bought a small farmhouse in California that had eight rooms at the time. And then she spent the next 40 years working on the house night and day and eventually turned it into a seven-story, 161-room mansion. And on the outside, you can see it up here, on the outside the house was beautiful. But on the inside, the house was chaos. There were staircases to nowhere. There were doors that opened to nothing. And they they, they even had these beautiful, priceless Tiffany stained glass windows that were installed in interior dark rooms where, where they'd never see the light of day. The house became this exhausting, expensive, ever-changing, ever-working-on madhouse. Finally, in 1922, Sarah Winchester died of heart failure. And only then did the work on the house cease. And so Sarah Winchester never stopped working until her heart just gave up. And that's what relying on the law ultimately does to you. It never lets you stop. It never lets you rest. It wears you out, and eventually it kills you because you can never finish the job. Relying on the law can't save you. It only leads you to pride, despair, and exhaustion. And so we've seen these two wrongs of rejection and reliance. And while these two wrongs do not make a right They do, in fact, share the same root. What both rejection and reliance share is a fundamental misunderstanding of the true purpose of the law. Both misunderstand the right motivation for obedience. Look at chapter 20, verse 2. This is where we see the right that corrects the two wrongs. God says, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you see what's going on here? This statement is a brief reminder of everything that has happened in chapters 1 through 19 in Exodus. Think about the story of Exodus so far. A few months earlier, these people were slaves in a foreign land. They're being told to make more bricks with less straw. 
And Pharaoh had organized a genocide to destroy both their babies and their culture. But then God intervened. He stepped in and he rescued them. He brought them through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea and the wilderness. And now here they are as a free people standing at the base of Mount Sinai worshiping God. They're doing exactly what God told Moses in chapter 3 that they would do. They have been delivered. They've been saved. They've been set free. And it's only now that God gives them the law. God gives them the law not as the means to their salvation, but as the response to their salvation. And you will never understand the Bible or the God of the Bible until you understand the order of operations here. The order here is, law, is not law, then deliverance. It's the opposite. It's deliverance, then law. It's not obey me and then I'll save you. It's I've saved you, therefore obey me. That's the order of operations. In other words, the right way for Israel to understand and apply the law was not as the requirement for a relationship with God, but as the response to a relationship with God. The law is given only after all that God has done for his people in the Exodus. And it was given to shape the life of a people who had already been saved. So if you get nothing else from this sermon today, get this. The law is not the requirement for a relationship with God, but the response to a relationship with God. The law is not the requirement for a relationship with God, but the response to a relationship with God. The law is a response. That's what it is. A few minutes ago, I talked about how the law can't save you. But one of the things the the law can and does do is it shows you your need for saving. It shows you that you fall short and you need a savior. And the good news of the Christian faith is that where we have all gone 0 for 10 and failed to obey, Jesus went 10 for 10 and perfectly obeyed. And then he gave his life on the cross to save us. That's available to you today. And the reason that Christians today obey God and keep his commandments is not because we're trying to earn salvation. The reason that Christians today obey God and keep his commandments is because we already have salvation. It's because we already have it. And understanding the order of operations here is essential. See, the person who doesn't understand this order, they obey God in order to get things from him. They do good because they want to get good from him. They don't do bad because they don't want to get bad from him. It's a relationship of manipulation. I do this for you. You do that for me. And what happens is if God doesn't give you what you want, then you become enormously frustrated and eventually you just quit. You throw in the towel. You give it all up. Like if you feel like that today, if you feel weighed down because by the burden of the law, it's probably because you've gotten the order wrong. Y'all, there are lots of people out there today who have rejected God altogether mainly because they got worn out relying on the law to try to save them. But when you do understand the order of operations, everything changes. The person who understands the sequence of salvation, then law, of grace, then obedience, of deliverance, then doing, of freedom, then faithfulness, that person gets a new and far more powerful motivation for obedience. So earlier I talked about Elsa's song from Frozen. But y'all remember the climactic scene at the end of the movie. So for the first half of the movie, what Elsa does is she relies on a law of her own making and she becomes a prisoner in her own castle. She's got to wear the gloves all the time, right? And she has no freedom because she's afraid of messing up and hurting someone with her ice powers. 
So what she does in the second half of the movie is she swings the pendulum the other way. She rejects the law and she lets it all go. No right, no wrong, no rules for her. She's free, she says. But in reality, in the second half of the movie, she's more a prisoner than ever. She's now trapped in the ice castle and her freedom brings destruction to the entire world as the ice and the snow spread throughout her whole kingdom. But in the climactic scene at the end of the movie, do you remember what it is that ultimately sets her free? It's an act of true love. An act of true love. And you go through the whole movie expecting it to be a kiss or a romantic relationship, but it's not. At the end of the movie, there's an act of true love where her sister Anna, Anna steps in front of Hans' sword and sacrifices herself to save her tormented sister. And when Elsa realizes just how deeply she is loved by Anna, her heart and her life and her entire world thaws and summer returns once and for all. She is set free by an act of true love. And that act of true love is what enables her and motivates her to live a life of genuine freedom where she uses her life and all her powers to love and serve others. Look, Frozen is a cartoon. It is not real life. But like all great stories, it draws its central narrative from the true great story. The story of God's great love for his people. A millennium after the Exodus, there was a true act of true love. Jesus Christ stepped out of the summer of heaven and into the winter of history. He saw us relying on the law and rejecting the law and experiencing the torment that comes from both. He lived a life of loving God and loving people. He went ten for ten. And then in the true act of true love, he stepped in front of the sword that was coming for us in order to set us free. And when you realize just how deeply you are loved by him, your heart and your life and your entire world thaws and summer returns once and for all. God loved Israel and he set them free from slavery so they could love and serve him through the law. And God loved you and me and set us free from slavery so that we could love and serve him through the law. We have titled this series in Exodus, Set Free to Live Free. Religious people believe that freedom is antithetical to the law. Secular people believe that freedom means rejecting the law. But the truth is that true freedom is found in the backyard of the one who stepped in front of the sword for us. He sets us free and then he gives us the law in order that we might live the most free lives possible. We who believe in Christ have been set free by an act of true love. And since we've been set free, now we can use our freedom to love God and to love others through the law. So don't reject the law and don't rely on the law to save you. But instead respond to your true freedom by obeying the law. Respond to God's love by obeying the law. And so go and keep the law. Because you've been set free, obey. For your good always. Let's pray. Father, your law is good. You are good. We praise that you're a God who sets your people free. Praise that you love us enough to, to sacrifice yourself, to set us free. Praise you for Jesus and the true act of true love and the new life we can have through him. God, I pray for those here today who uh, don't yet know that love, who have not received it, who, have, who are rejecting the law or relying on the law. God, today, would today be the day where they receive Christ and where they, for the rest of their lives, can respond to your, to, to your grace in their lives with, with obedience to you. 
I pray for those who, who've been relying on the law, who, who, who know you, but who, who just haven't gotten this yet, who've gotten the order wrong and are feeling weighed down by it. God, I pray that today you would set them free in a new way. You show them the grace of obedience, the goodness of your law as a response to you. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would be a people who are shaped by your good design, by your good plan. Would we live out your law, faithfully following you, the one who set us free. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.